and welcome to Everybody Pray, Everybody Gay. A queer exploration of teenage bounty hunters. With your hosts, Speak Pirate, a.k.a. Joanna. I'm here, I'm queer, and I can't wait to not skip any of the queer stuff. And your other host, LCO123, a.k.a. Vina, a proud member of the Church of Sterling and April. Oh my gosh, so here we are back with our Teenage Bounty Hunters mini-series that we are doing. And tonight we are talking about episodes three and four. Uh, This must be How Dumb Kids Feel is the first one. And uh, then the second one is basically Pluto. Yes, yeah, two super, super fun episodes. Um, we, com- we, I was commenting before we started that one of the fun things about uh, the way that we're doing these episodes where we're talking about them more thematically is that we really get to see the overarching themes of each episode and how kind of well-constructed this season is as a whole um, and how I think the, the sort of case of the week really interacts with the theme of the episode. Would you agree? Oh, yes, yes. In fact, I feel like watching them in this way like that's kind of a um, like a weather vane. Like what you've got to keep an eye on it. Keep an eye on what's happening in the case of the week because that's going to be a key for like what's actually happening uh, underground through the rest of the episode. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I felt like um, the theme. One of the major themes to me that I felt in this must be how dumb kids feel is, you know, ironically like things not necessarily being black or white and how real life situations are often more complicated than they appear to be at first. Oh yeah. I, I have in my notes, this episode could have an alternate title of it's complicated. Um, <laughs> Cause it's like, it's very much about how sometimes people are not who you think they are. And other times they're exactly who you know they are. Uh, but the people who have the power to surprise you and broaden your worldview are the ones that can like kind of lead you to surprise yourself. Uh, and I think you get a lot of that. You get a lot of characters surprising themselves in this episode. And I think that that's really fun. I think that that's a, a great, it, it like, it shows, again, the confidence of the writing here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, especially yeah. that just three episodes in, you know the characters well enough to understand that they are behaving in a way um, that they're, like, a little bit taken aback by. Yeah, and that you're kind of uh, already three episodes in, we're sort of experiencing um, the ripples of like this mini arc of Sterling, you know, uh, having sex with Luke, coming out about having sex with Luke, and now living in the aftermath of that revelation. Uh, and, And this episode, you know, kind of begins with Sterling in this place of extreme anxiety about like, who is she? What, how can she move through school? How can she fit in? Um, post this revelation that she has had sex with Luke. And um, they, the two of them are, are sort of in this interesting place of being very ostracized at the school. One thing that I appreciated about this episode is that I feel like usually when we see, um, like I was thinking particularly about like Friday Night Lights, like when we see a, 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 a heterosexual relationship is sort of outed in some way that it's, it's especially around sex and, you know, being teenagers, it's often the female character who gets all the brunt of everything. And I liked that um, in this, in this episode, like Luke is going through it too. Yeah. I like that you, I like that you called out Friday night lights because I, I did say there's a lot of Lila Garrity in yeah. the twins. Uh, and I, I feel like particularly in Friday night lights when, 
uh, Lila and Riggins are exposed. Like that yeah. definitely, that definitely falls on her back much more than his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but that is a big thing that's going on. Sterling is being ostracized by the fellowship group, which is like the work of April, uh, the work of April standing in front of Sterling with her arms crossed, not allowing her in the room. Uh, Ezekiel has like, uh, he has done some kind of uh, uh, reenactment with dolls to show everyone what Sterling and Luke did. And according to April, the voices were very disturbing. Well, interesting, I... <laughs> interesting to hear that, April. Well, and that all of this is at the behest of April, who again is like so fixated on the fact that Sterling Wesley had set and like everything that that means. Also, you know, we talked about having to do a like close face watch between April and Sterling. I feel like we need a how many times is April going to grab Sterling's arm? watch this season and just general like unnecessary physical contact between the two of them because uh for two people who claim to hate each other they sure touch each other a lot they do they do and they they just give each other these like intense looks all the time like there's not really ever a moment when they're talking and you get the the feeling that either of them could take it or leave it like when they when they clash like every molecule of their beings is focused on the other one well, I know if I'm I've mentioned this before and I'm sure I'll be a broken record by the end of the season, but like it to me it so is reminiscent of like the best Spencer Mona scenes where it's like you two are either about to slap each other or kiss each other. Like that like the level of intensity is is in that place. It's I mean it's also like we've said it's also very like Buffy and Faith. Like it's just like there's so much just passion in all forms in this relationship. Well, and that they're they're set up as opposing forces, but it's like it's like they're two ends of the magnet. Like they have like yeah. this attraction as well as this repulsion because like there's something about them that is so much the same. Like even they don't fully like it. I, and I like it as as a story about teenage girls who are discovering themselves. Like that's very Buffy and Faith too. Like slayers who are coming into their own power. Like. Yeah. These these are two young women who don't fully understand like the power and their desire and like all of these things that they're going to like be able to discover uh, the forces in play with together. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Also, um, just I think a hilarious side character of this show is Franklin, the golf uh, <laughs> golf teammate who is so enraged that Luke um that Luke like had sex and then claimed to not be having sex uh and like later in the season he'll have a freak out on April that's really hilarious like he's just he's just a very funny character yeah he he throws the club cozy that's like the special cap is called and I I the thing I love about this kid Franklin is that the actor who's doing it he plays this with like he plays it with sincerity. Like, it's like a sincere, like, God rage that he has that he's doing this. Like, um, yeah, I, <laughs> what does he say? He says, like, find me in the showers, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very funny. You're, you're right. That is a small scene, but it is a standout in this episode. <laughs> yeah, it, it for sure is. Well, he's also the one later in the season who wants, like, 
he he wants he wants like a really gory reenactment for like their architecture project. Like he just like wants blood dripping everywhere. Yeah. Oh, and also, um, like as in the way that like let he who is without sin cast the stone. Uh, he's also somebody that we're gonna see. I think having sex in one of the final yeah. episodes of the season uh, during during the lock in. We, we presume he's having sex. It certainly seems like. It is his intention to do so. They're moving in that direction. Yeah. Yes. Yes. For sure. Um, but yeah, so the, this episode has like the fallout of, of Sterling uh, having confessed. And there are going to be maybe some grief counselors. Uh, Lucas had his captaincy of the golf team revoked in the locker room scene that we were just talking about. Um, so you get, you, you get that like both Sterling and Luke are very adrift. Uh, and this is also really an episode where you kind of you kind of see some of the cracks in their relationship starting to show because even though you know you would think that this would be drawing them onto an island together, like you're drawing the circle where it's just the two of them who are inside of it. But Sterling is actually drawing a circle that's pretty much just her. Like we do not see her giving Luke really any emotional support like through his struggles here like he actually i think he almost gets more from blair when blair is like there are lots of sports join a new team make some new buds like that's really like sterling really is not interacting with luke's pain at all like she's just kind of very focused on what's gonna happen with her oh yeah completely well later in this episode she just pretty much abandons him and like does not (laughs) invite him to be in any way you know part of of their situation um yeah i i took the note in, in at one point in this episode that i feel like this episode kind of shows us how sterling and luke are like great friends and there is a sense of like their ha- shared history but like they're not like we yeah we're seeing the cracks in their relationship for sure well and like the first two episodes that we talked about last week were very much about world building Uh, in terms of the world that the show exists in. And I feel like these two now are like world expanding um, because we're getting like, we're getting new characters. We're learning more about how people interact. And this is going to be like, this is a scene that actually happens in, in the fourth episode, but just to talk about it in like the world expanding nature, when we meet Luke's mom and when uh, there's a scammer selling everyone jewelry, uh, Luke's mom at one point says that she's going to buy a necklace for Luke to give to Sterling because it's their six year anniversary coming up. So like we're existing in a world where these two teenagers are having a six year anniversary that one parent is buying a gift for. Like that's the world that Sterling and Luke are living in. Yes. Yes. And, and yeah, there's, I, I love the way that their relationship, I just, I love the way that like, I just, I like Luke as a character a lot. I think Luke is a really well-constructed character. I really like that he's not a jerk. Um, And I like that you can tell why he and Sterling like one another, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And why they have this history and this comfort and and there is a real sense of safety between them. Um, But ultimately, a lot of this series is about Sterling realizing that she wants, she doesn't really want just safety. She wants passion you know she she wants something that really challenges her and and sort of shakes her to her core um and that's just not the relationship that she has with luke uh one of the other themes of this episode that i that i think is great is um 
this sort of dichotomy of Sterling caring so much what people think and Blair not caring what people think. And that ultimately kind of being Blair's downfall in this episode that she's so blase that she ends up kind of blowing this this date, which is Blair's storyline is is about um, her <laughs> basically can be summarized as Miles is hot. Repeat. <laughs> Miles is hot. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, yeah, so she reluctantly kind of goes on her promise date with Miles, and in order to uh, get it out of the way with like the least amount of effort uh, and to give him the idea that she's not into it, she's taking him to the bargain hole. Uh, like, and she's like stinky in her lacrosse uniform. Sterling describes her as smelling like the inside of a leg cast. So, like, it's not, it's not good. Um, and then we get this great, like, long walk reveal that Miles is hot. Repeat, Miles is hot when he's out of uniform. He's, like, strolling through the bargain hole. He's looking so good. Like, Blair, like, sits up from the upside-down position she's been in in the recliner to watch him come towards her. There's, like, a little girl who's, like, like four or five years old who's been bouncing on a bed who, like, stops mid-bounce and just watches him walk with an open mouth like it's it's so well done like the reveal of this is like so perfect well one of the things I love about the way that Miles is the reveal of Miles's hotness is framed is that it's not just like oh like Miles has muscles or something like that like it's that he's like fashionable and cool and has like unique hobbies and interests and opinions and is like a, a like a cool interesting person and and like that is what part of like what makes him so cool and attractive to Blair, which to me is like much more dynamic than it just being like, oh, like reveal like Miles has abs or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. It's like a whole package situation with him. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I, I also feel like uh, Blair might have a little bit of a crush on the skip of this week. Uh, who is um, Claire Kincaid, a woman who has been beheading Confederate statues. Yes, yes. And she's like, you know, keep an eye on what the skip's going, uh, has going on. Uh, we get Bowser, uh, again, professing like a colorblind idea of like, you know, who, it, it doesn't matter if they're black or white. It doesn't matter what they're doing. Uh, they're a skip. And so it's their job to bring them in. Um, Blair openly admires her. Like, uh, there's a video. Uh, there's the video where she's kind of dancing in front of the camera when asked for a comment, and Blair is just like, she's like the most badass person I've ever seen. Uh, and Blair is actually she is reluctant for them to try and catch her. Like Blair, Blair doesn't think that she should be caught. Yeah, which I I really I really like. I like that as a conflict. I just think that the beginning of this episode is brilliant of this this like <laughs> this like shopkeeper is like walking through town and having this beautiful day and then she comes upon the sight of <gasps> gasp this beheaded Confederate monument and <laughs> you know is is horrified and scandalized and traumatized by it. Um and it feels like this episode, you know, it's it's delving into some some kind of heavy topics around um around you know racism and and confederate monuments but i feel like it it handles that in such a way where it's never punching down it's always mocking 
you know, these ridiculous white supremacists. Well, that's, that's interesting because I feel like, like this episode does do some unusual things like with race and gender. Uh, and they're clunky at, at times, like Blair, I would agree with that. Yeah. like Blair is pro statue beheading, but Miles argues that the statue should stay up. So no one forgets what happened. And he like laments tax dollars being diverted to fix them. I kind of think that that comes across maybe deliberately as like an unexpected stance for a young black guy to take. Like he could also argue that like it takes focus from pressing current issues or, you know, something like that. But the point that they're driving at seems to be that like black people aren't a monolith and that it's wrong to assume that like everybody has the same opinion or like your entire point of view is defined by your skin color, which, you know, okay. But they also have that like weird ha ha situation with the sisters of the Confederacy being a bunch of men that seems like a pretty unnecessary flourish to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I can definitely see that. And it, it is it, like they, they sort of go out of their way to portray the, you know, the quote unquote sisters as just ridiculous idiots, not like potentially violent, dangerous people. Um, I feel like they were, you know, it was very much in the tone of, of, of sort of satirizing that viewpoint, you know, and. and... Yeah, I I see where you're, I definitely think that their intention was to satirize it. And I think that I even like things change very quickly in our world right now. And I think that this just is kind of an episode that was like written and produced and, you know, put out there like even just a few months before, before this moment that we're in. And sure. like, even, even the first time I watched it a couple of weeks ago, I think I probably felt differently about it than I feel about it today. Like, um, you know, the sisters of the Confederacy decide to join Bowser on the stakeout of the statue that they think Clea is targeting next. And they like say that their objective is to get her to like get Clea and it's yeah. like undefined, but kind of ominous in the way of like maybe a lynch mob. And I, I just feel like they're played for a joke, but like white supremacist vigilantes aren't funny right now. Like sure. it's sure. it's one thing to make them ridiculous and ask us to laugh at them, but like we kind of live in these unfortunate times when the racist uncle who sometimes has the nuke codes is emboldening the Proud Boys in the debate last night. So it just seems like, I don't sure. know, it seems like it's not a joke. And also, like, the, they're painted as, like, this sort of, like, misguided, nostalgia-driven racists um, who our heroes contemporary, you know, can, like, temporarily form an alliance with. And I just, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I don't love that. I don't think it's very funny. Um, and the sisters thing is, is just a, a weird, like, a weird layer on top of that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I hear all of that. And I definitely felt like the scenes later in the episode where Bowser is alone with these men, like the potential danger of that situation seemed really downplayed to me in a way that I thought was off. I found, Mm -hmm. yeah. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, Um, I think the episode is, I think it's, I think it's, it's delving into some murky waters and trying to be on the 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 right side of the situation it's not always 
it, it's clunky, like you said. There's there are clunky moments for sure. There are there are clunky moments. I mean, I think that it's well intentioned. Um, yeah. But I I think like just the execution, you have to walk a really really fine line, and I think they they sometimes trip over that line from time to time. But yeah, I, I, agree. I don't want to like you know it's okay. Like we, we get to talk about it and we get to like, you know, have, have different thoughts about it. Like this is also like, this is like a world that is really different from our world. Like I live in the Midwest, you live in the Pacific Northwest, like Mm -hmm. the South, you know, the South is a place that I have visited and that I do not live there for reasons. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's an interesting, like, it's an interesting window uh, for for us into that world, just as, like, the characters in the show are having their worldview broadened a little bit uh, as they, as they navigate this plot line. Do you feel like the, the show, at, like, attempting sort of this plot line on race is, do you feel like they should have maybe avoided this altogether, or do you feel like it's, it's ultimately a if off the mark, well-intentioned enough. I think it's off the mark and well-intentioned enough, but I think that, um, like, I think that probably the way to do this would have been to center, uh, to center Bowser and to center Miles a little bit more than the twins are centered in this episode. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It does feel like, especially that conversation um, with, with Miles and um, at the college, like that is a, that they're sort of they're sort of giving the characters words to say for the sake of conflict in some ways more than really thinking thinking through what they, what they, like really there's there's less thoughtfulness there than I think there should be. Well, and like Bowser, like Bowser is the saving grace of this episode sure. because um, because Bowser exists in this world and has a place in this world that's been established, whereas Clea. And and Miles, who will later exist on his own in this world, but doesn't really yet. Like Miles and Clea in this episode both function very much as uh, you know black characters who exist in order to move the white characters to a different place of understanding. Um, sure. Like they're you know, so I, I feel like that's just something to like keep tabs on as well. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting case. (laughs) It is. It is very interesting. Um, I like your idea that Blair has a crush on Clea. I definitely, definitely think that you can, uh, that you can see that, especially when she agrees that she's going to like help them to track her, but she's going to bring a snack that she can eat on the way to jail. Uh, I think, so I think it's like, it's kind of funny that like Blair obviously has this fantasy that like they're going to catch Clea and then Blair's going to give her a snack and learn how to be a badass from her. Um, and I feel like later when we get to the end of the episode and Sterling uh, has these, this drunk story posted on Instagram about being at this college party, I just feel like you know that April was out there watching that on Instagram and having fantasies of like going to the college and pulling Sterling out of the party and like <laughs> rescue you just know you just know that that is what oh, was I happening that. I love that yeah it's also there's a great moment of foreshadowing when Blair um is talking about that because she says uh she's gonna bring her a snack something sour patch 
yes ultimately plays very heavily into the last episode which i believe is called something sour patch yeah yeah for sure for sure um we also meet the wesley grandparents in this episode yes new characters alert oh these grandparents tell us tell us about them oh (laughs) they are um they are really something they are (laughs) extremely extremely conservative um absolutely trump voters like the show doesn't even need to tell us um and uh yeah they are they're in town because um the well they, they, i don't know if they're in town for this reason but um the the debbie the wesley mom is very concerned about anderson the father uh getting a promotion from Big Daddy, which is, you know, the fact that, that this grandfather is called Big Daddy kind of tells you everything you need to know. Um, and so there's a lot of conflict around the fact that, you know, the girls are encouraged to tamp down everything that they believe, really, uh, <laughs> in order to to appease their extremely conservative grandparents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like... The grandpa who, like, we we almost know everything we need to know about him by the fact that he goes by Big Daddy. That's what yes. everybody calls him. Uh, but also that he is the kind of man who would rather carry a full bowl of tomato bisque out onto the pa- uh, onto the veranda, uh, which soup is not really a veranda food. It's not really like it's it's not really even a just a one handed food. Like you hold the bowl in one hand and spoon it. Like this isn't that kind of bowl. He would rather take his soup to the veranda than sit at a table with someone who has challenged uh, his views about the Confederacy. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and ultimately, though, like this is sort of the key into their case is that, you know, once again, that the Wesleys are, you know, they're they're very white. And so they can move through these white spaces and uh, collect information. Yes. Yes. Uh, and then also the the grandma. I don't know if we know her name or not. Um, I'm not sure. Big Daddy's wife, uh, who is not called Big Mama or anything like that. She's like, she's just like his, the help meet of Big Daddy, uh, who, my goodness, she has like such an impressive repertoire of melt in your mouth insults. Uh, like, oh, you know, like when, uh, when we learn that Deb's parents are dead because she has inquired after them. And when Deb like kind of awkwardly says, no, you know, they're dead. She's she, her response is like, Oh, I just can't believe they did that. That's not something that we do. Living is our thing. And it's just like, what, what, what a hideous response. Oh my goodness. My, my favorite line of hers in this episode and possibly my favorite line of the episode altogether, it's towards the end when she's uh, she's like thanking them for brunch and as they're leaving, <laughs> she, she refers to uh, Debbie's unforgettable attempt at eggs. <laughs> yes, yes. After after declining to stay at their home, they're like spotless, pristine, beautiful home by saying, they won't be staying there, not when Deb clearly has so much housework uh, to be doing. 
And then, like, later, when I think she's asked them to stay for dinner and says she's, like, roasting chicken, uh, and, and the grandmother is like, oh, is that what that smell is? I thought maybe an owl got stuck in the bug zapper. <laughs> well, but this is another interesting little moment where, you know, we learn allegedly that Debbie's parents are dead, which mm-hmm. is an element of the plot that we don't really, by the end of the season, we don't really know. And it seems like a lie. It's It seems yes. like a lie when she says it here. It doesn't seem like something that you're supposed to believe. Right, right, exactly, exactly. But Debbie is pushing very hard on the promotion through this whole episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting, like, when we see, like, when we see the grandmother and we see the way uh, that she interacts with these, like, biting insults that are, like, meant to seem like they're meant to seem like not mean but they really are very mean um I feel like this is a place and and also when we even see Debbie's like attempts to like push the promotion um like in in a way that like makes it seem like she's just building up her husband I feel like we start to understand some of Blair's issues where like her only two modes are like kick in the doors communication or lie wildly. Like those are her, mm. those are her two modes. And I feel like when you see this dynamic at play, you kind of understand where that comes from. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was finding myself wondering like how, like later in the episode when, um, when, Debbie and Anderson kind of have their conversation about like, why are you, you know, why are you pushing this so hard? And Debbie is like, well, I'm like, I miss the man that I married and does seem to be true, but are there ulterior motives? I I mean, we, we will later learn in the season that, that they need money to kind of pay off slash get rid of Dana. Um, But Anderson knows about Dana. And so it seems like Debbie wouldn't need to necessarily hide that from him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, I'm not totally sure what her, if there is an ulterior motive here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, it could be, it's hard to say. Um, But yeah, it's interesting to see. And and that like really um, broadens our understanding of their parents as well, because normally we see the parents in a position of like authority over the twins. And so it's interesting to like watch them interacting with like the people who are kind of an authority in their lives. Totally, totally. And that, um, yeah, that it's like everybody kind of has somebody to answer to in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other little um, inversions that I really enjoy in this episode is, so Sterling, you know, she's like trying to find her new crew and she approaches the quote unquote bad kids who are actually like the most hardworking, socially conscious people and ultimately like probably the most Christian of anybody. Oh, the, I love that. Like they're actually far more involved in like uh, community community actions than the fellowship kids are. Like they're yeah. out there doing good works like 24 seven to the point that Sterling is like, oh, this is this is actually a little too much for me. Yeah, even Sterling is like, I, I can't, uh, I can't really commit to this. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, despite the fact that they smoke, uh, they are nonetheless extremely socially conscious. Exactly, exactly. 
But, like, her interaction with them is another part of, like, the expansion of their worlds. Like, she's trying things out. She's going to see if maybe she can, like, be a shirt untucked, slouchy walk, uh, you know, bad kid. Uh, At the same time that Blair is really being intrigued by, you know, not only Miles' hotness, like you said, but the new things that he represents. Like, not only is he Black, but he goes to public school. He has, like, a job job. He does metalworking for a steampunk rave that he's DJing. And he spends his nights going to college parties thrown by his sister. Yes, which is where... Uh, where Blair gets invited and then frantically needs Sterling to come along. And Sterling is, uh, she's into this because she decides college kids clearly are the ones that, uh, that she should be ultimately hanging out with. Um, side note in the, like the bad kids group, how many of them do you think are queer? Oh my gosh. I think, at, well, okay. We should actually have like accounting up how many background characters do we think are queer like on the show i definitely think that the guy who talks about uh who tries to get her to go to the car wash i think he's queer and i also think that the girl who has like the um i don't even really know how to describe the hairstyle like the <laughs> the, the pointy buns like yes. where she almost looks like a dilbert character um yes. that that girl i think is also queer yes i i agree i agree yeah and i We'll have to we'll have to keep a running a running tally going on like who else? I mean, uh, well, sure Ezekiel. Uh, yeah, I mean Ezekiel. Yeah. It, it's never like it's never openly discussed, but he yeah. definitely um, he definitely gives that vibe. And also, I mean, I am very curious about Hannah B. I'm really interested in the minions that April has surrounded herself with, um, especially because Hannah B. is like always at her side. Uh, is always there, is, is like really disappointed when April can't come over for like lamb chops or whatever. Like she's really, she's really torn up about that. Like more torn up than one would think you would be at like your very overbearing friend being supposed to eat at your house. Like, I don't know. Oh man, do you think Hannah B has like an unrequited thing for April? And like April's just been staring at Sterling for so long that like it's, it, she's not even seeing it? That's I'm so not sad. Saying- I'm not saying it's, I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm just monitoring. I'm monitoring the gay situation. <laughs> Could we ship Hannah B and Blair? Yes. Oh, we, could. <laughs> we definitely could. There was no hesitation there. I cracked <laughs> once, but you know. <laughs> no, no, but that, that has never stopped us before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, when you think about it, like it, when Sterling and April, like if they get back together and they go to spending all their time together, Blair could be at a loose end. Hannah B could be at a loose end. Like, just just putting it out there. You know, Ezekiel's hanging out with the bad kid guy. Like, <laughs> it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like a game of musical chairs. It is. It is. Um, but yes, at this college party, I love, I love the 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 like teenage logic of how Sterling gets drunk. Because she's like, I'm going to like, I'm going to hold up this red solo cup to my lips. And Blair's like, well, you like, you should actually like put it to your lips. And then she like tastes it. And she's like, a little got in my mouth. Oh, this tastes good. I should have more. And it's just like, it's such teenage logic of like, well, obviously the only reasonable way for me to go through this situation is for me to just get completely drunk. And I love her line when she's like, 
trying to introduce herself to people and she's like, Sterling Wesley, how the heck are you? <laughs> I I really like this scene. I I love that um one of the things that happens as well is that um Sterling is a straight arrow. She has never had any kind of alcohol before. Well, she's um, a bi arrow, but I mean, I know what you mean. Right, yes, yes. I, <laughs> yes. Um, I, yeah, I, I could have called her straight edge too, but that wouldn't have been good either. Um, yeah, she, but she's like, you know, she's never really had alcohol before. Um, she says it doesn't taste like poison unless poison tastes like cherry. Uh, so this is like, she's just learned something. She's learned that something she was taught her whole life isn't true. It doesn't yeah. taste like poison. It tastes good. It's making her feel good. She's going to have more of it. So this is like an expanding her worldview situation. And I really like my favorite part about this is that Sterling has a great time at this party. She is having so much fun. She's playing beer pong. She's doing jello shots. She's putting jello shots on pizza. She's like, you know, she is uninhibited. She is talking to all these college people and like having a great time with them. Uh, and that that exists. The fact that she had a totally great time exists alongside the fact that she also records this entire drunken saga on her Instagram and the fact that this ends with her just puking all over everything as you do. And that she cracks the case in the middle of yeah. it too. Yeah. Like what a night for Sterling. <laughs> yeah. But I like that it's just not, it, it's not like Caleb when he comes back from Ravenswood and just like sits just sits in the sad place pounding beers like she gets drunk and she has a great time and like you know the worst thing that happens to her is that she records it all on her instagram and is is going to uh you know because like so many times uh like like look at buffy look at reptile boy when she and cordelia go to the party at the frat house where there's drinking and then they wind up chained in the basement like almost being sacrificed to the reptile god like there are a lot of shows that like the character uh, does underage drinking, but then, like, within the plot has to be, like, overtly karmically punished for that. Um, Sterling is going to get punished for that by her mom, but, like, it's not like, you know, it's not like she's being sacrificed to the reptile god. Right, it's not, like, beer bad. Um... Well, oh, yeah, another another great one where it's, like, there is a moral here. yeah. Well, I'm just, yeah, I'm just thinking about Caleb and when he's hashtag haunted. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree. And and it's in, I feel like that really interacts with the conversation earlier in the episode where um, Blair and Sterling are talking about um, Sterling's voices regret that she came out about her and Luke. And, and Blair is like, do you regret having sex with him? And Sterling's like, no, I'm good with God. Um, but this whole situation of like all sins being equal is super complicated for me. Like I'm, I'm basically being treated like a mass murderer, um, which you're not quite Sterling, but like, I get the point like that. And that's something that she'll talk about in the next episode too. Like if all sins are equally bad, how do you make any choices, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. how do you like move through a, a world where every bad action is the same level of bad? Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I like this a lot. I like that Sterling gets to go to this party. She gets to have a great time. And then like she, 
The thing that I really like about Sterling is that she bears up under the consequences of her own actions. She doesn't shirk it. Like she yeah. does it and she owns it. Totally, totally. And I, I love the moment when um, they're doing their like twin vision thing across the <laughs> room, but it's like completely thwarted by Sterling's drunkenness. <laughs> it's so good. And I also really like, you know, th- there's so much great foreshadowing here. Like, Miles and Blair have this, ha- you know, they have the conversation that we talked about um, with the other college kids. And then um, Miles kind of turns it around to talk about their burgeoning relationship and Blair, you know, not putting any effort into their date and all of that. And um, he accuses her of seeing life as this sort of binary system. And then he asks Blair to be real with him for just a second, which is, I mean, those are basically the exact words he's going to say to her when they eventually break up. Like all Miles is asking for their entire relationship is for Blair to be real with him. And ultimately that's um, what tears them apart the first time. And then, and then he's not real about her later and that tears them apart the second time. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to like watch. It's interesting to watch because this show Uh, allows relationships to run their course. And so it's really fun to watch these relationships that we know aren't going to go the distance and see the ways in which, like, the flags were always fluttering for them. Sure, sure. But I appreciate how it's not like, like, it doesn't feel like they're rushing through to break up Luke and Sterling. It feels like Luke and Sterling reach the natural conclusion of their relationship. And I, I... You know, as much as it's like I'm eager to get to the gay stuff, it's like I like that it takes so long to get there because it it's it's the building blocks are are being very carefully handled. Well, and I I feel like the way that the way that it's handled where Luke and Sterling are eventually going to break up and we're getting ahead of ourselves because that's like still a, a few episodes away. It's going to be like our next podcast episode when we get there. But it shows like when the dead weight of of that is cleared away, it just opens up the horizons of the characters so much more. Like Mm -hmm. we see that happening for Blair this week because she's cleared away Jennings. uh, And now she's like just out there, out and about seeing what else is around. Exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, so Sterling kind of cracks the case. She realizes that Clea is um, targeting schools and um, they... You know, they get in touch with Bowser. He kind of is also on his mission where he figures out that um, that their initial theory is wrong um, about which which statue she was going to. Um, meanwhile, in all of this, Anderson dramatically quits his job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like there are many unexpected like the end of this episode is just like a cascade of unexpected happenings um, like. Blair decides that she's into Miles uh, and she's going to pick him up for a second date. Uh, They're going to catch the skip, but then Bowser is going to let her continue beheading the last statue before they take her in, like contradicting, you know, his, his previous uh, stated opinions that like none of this really matters to him. Uh, You know, their dad stands up to big daddy and quits his job. Um, You know, just like this cascade of unexpected like results of everything that's been building up. And the best one is that because the fellowship peeps are like these innocent godly lambs, they see Sterling's drunken night on Insta. And it's like the final step in the arc of her as a fallen woman, as the sinningest sinner who's ever sinned. 
Uh, but then, like, when they see her, like, just dressed for school and, like, looking normal the next day, like, they, like, to them, that's not just, like, well, you get drunk and then the next morning you, like, might be a little bit hungover, but you're, like, fine, it's normal. Uh, they They see her as, like, having probably already, like, gone through rehab and, like, you know, like, that, that's their impression of it. And so she actually gets to, like, kind of spin this, um, you know, to, like, spin this new experience that she had as being, like, lifted up and restored by God. And then she's able to just, like, walk right back into the fellowship room, shoulder-checking April, uh, unnecessary physical contact on her way in the door. Yes, the way that she brushes past April is just glorious. It's so good. Like her, her posture is, you know, like she's, she's, she's Sterling is like feeling in her element for like the first, the first time in a while here. And, and she's like, she has like this cluster of, uh, of other fellowship members around her who are just hanging on her every word. Uh, And April, like April does not have the power to deny them all. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's so good. And then Blair is finally like real with Miles showing up and telling him, you know, that she wants to take him on a real date, calling him hot to his face, which he is uh, clearly very happy about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, uh, like Deb finds out about Sterling's drunken Insta and lays down the tough love rules, no drinking under their roof. So uh, because she was drinking at this party, Sterling is going to sleep outside in a tent in the yard. Yeah, which is I feel like played um, played as like a comedic beat. And then ultimately, I like how that storyline in the next episode, it morphs into a more sort of serious um, moment with Debbie and Sterling. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I I completely, completely agree. so one thing I think it was interesting to like keep an eye on things we talked about in the first episode um, that are still like I'm watching uh, as we move through this one. Uh, Blair's decision making. Uh, if she didn't want to go out with Miles, she could have said no. Uh, if she was willing to go out with him, she could have done it in good faith, like dinner or in a movie or something. Uh, she could have engaged with him and asked what he might like to do. He could have taken her to a rave that he was DJing. He could have taken her to this party as his date. She doesn't do that. Uh, And then when he walks in and she realizes that she's into him, uh, she could have just played it off like, oh, they were just starting out at Bargain Hole. Also, what a great name of the store that she's at, like Bargain Hole. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And she could have said, oh, we're just starting out here and then like taking him somewhere else. Uh, She could have leveled with him and admitted she hadn't taken the date seriously, but she'd like to and see if he'll reschedule. She could have had Sterling text with a pretend emergency to force a redo, but no, she just like forges ahead like no other choices exist, dragging out this date at Bargain Hole to ridiculous length and then inviting herself along to the party later on. Yeah, that's totally, totally true. Yes, she she makes some uh, some not so great uh, some not so great decisions here. Well, it's like it's a hallmark of how she like how she interacts with the world. Like she just she always feels like there was no other path but the path that she was forced to take uh, when in reality she generally has a lot of choices, but she just gravitates towards the ones that are going to like up the drama. Totally. And then she'll eventually get called on it by Sterling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, Now, what do you think about 
Uh, what do you think about when Bowser and Sterling are in favor of ta tracking Clea uh, and Blair like is kind of open in her admiration for what she's doing? What do you think of the fact that Blair goes along with that? That Blair goes along with the with the bounty hunting mission, or that yeah. Blair, yeah, because yeah, like in terms of other choices, like Blair could refuse to participate. Sure. Yeah, I think it speaks to the ways in which they still see this as a game, you know, mm. and they sort of still are, they don't really see it as like they're dealing with real people here. They see it as like, oh, we're like playing dress up and putting on our disguises and being badasses. Oh, and later Blair's going to say, did we just solve a mystery? We're like Nancy Drew. So like that definitely. Yeah. That. Yeah. What about you? Well, I think it speaks to like the fact that Blair and Sterling have not like, um, like they're in it together. Like it's not thinkable yet that one of them could want to do something that the other one would refuse to do or wouldn't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I th I think that that's, I think that that's true. I think that's probably true. That yeah, they're such a unit. Yeah. I, I just think it's interesting that like she doesn't like, because let's say, let's say that Blair had said, I'm sitting this one out. I, I don't think that this woman belongs in jail. I think that that would have changed Sterling's calculus on it. And I think it may have even changed Bowser's a little bit. Um, although I, I do think he would have still tried to find her. Um, so it's interesting that like Blair doesn't do that, but then she does have, uh, she does have like, she stands up to big daddy when big daddy is like saying uh, racist things at their brunch. Uh, she's like, I can't help it. It's like a sneeze. And then yeah. she, you know, and, and then she talks back to him. Yeah, I I think that that's that, that's really true. She's um yeah, it comes out in certain moments with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it it's it's Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that like these characters are are navigating here is like how much privilege they have in these situations, right? Yeah. yeah. You know? 100% yeah. and and how much power uh, mm -hmm. And then also the other, like the other thing I'm keeping eyeballs on is Sterling's ideas about partnership. We touched on this a little bit, but how she's like physically present with Luke for a lot of this episode, but emotionally is just not supporting him because she's wrapped up in her own stuff. Yeah, I, I like that scene a lot where right before she's called to the party where they're like, like eating chips and he's like feeding chips to her and they're like, Again, they're like physically, it's it's a physically intimate moment. You know, his head is in her lap. He's feeding her food. And yet they're completely not really talking to each other, you know, and mm -hmm. he's kind of trying to connect more and she's sort of off in her own bubble. Yeah. And then she like, like, so what they have is this physical closeness. Um, and then she like bails on that too. She like goes off and she runs off to the party and she just leaves him all by himself in this auditorium where he is momentarily going to discover that maybe what he can be is a musician um, to like the shock and horror of everyone. Uh, he's going to be a musician. But it's just like even the physical closeness isn't something that she feels has a lot of value for her right now. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's true. Yeah, it's it's she's already kind of one foot out the door a little bit. And, and on one hand, like, Sterling, that's good. You're a part, you're like, she's not one of those girls who expects that her partner is going to be able to meet her every single need, um, because that's not realistic. But 
not only does she not think that he needs to meet every one of her needs, she is not interested in meeting even like a minimum of his needs, it seems like here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really clear that they're not, they're just not on the same page. They're just not on the same page at all. Yeah, and poor Luke, like, it, it was, you know, like, they, they both had sex, they've both been having sex, but, like, Sterling definitely, um, definitely had a hand in persuading him into it, uh, and then she decided that she was going to tell everyone, kind of, like, you get the idea that they didn't really come to, like, a mutual understanding about that either, and now Luke is, like, having to just, like, live in, in the rubble of that choice right now. Well, and also, I, I think that's really true. And and also, you know, at the in the last episode when um, Sterling and Blair are talking about love and um, Blair says something like, not the way that you loved Luke, the way that Luke loves you. And it's like, at that point in the series, Sterling is at a place where she can acknowledge, like, there is a big difference there. There's a big difference in the way that she loved Luke versus the way that Luke loved her. Um, and that's, I, yeah, I really, I feel sad. I feel sad for Luke. I'm happy for him that he's going to discover his love of music. Um, <laughs> because it does seem to be something that brings him a certain amount of joy, but I feel sad for him that he is, um, you know, that he's, that he's kind of going through this. And I hope that, I hope that next season he can like, he can, he can find, <laughs> he can find someone else. Yes. Not, not Sterling or April or that girl who is hooking up with Franklin in the, in the last episode. Yeah. Maybe Ezekiel, you know, plot twist. Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, should we, uh, should we transition to talking about basically Pluto? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely think we should. I think we've, uh, we've gone through the first episode uh, really excellent and, and a good, a good point to transition now into the, the fourth episode. All right, so the fourth fourth episode is basically Pluto. I feel like the theme of this episode is moving on. Oh, I think the theme of this episode is what you let in. Oh, interesting, interesting. I like I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, I like that this is an episode that takes place over the weekend. Like, there's no school in this episode, but we're sort of seeing the the Wesleys on a weekend. <laughs> we are. And it starts with uh, Sterling still in exile from her home, sleeping in the tent, uh, where Luke has been so kind as to come by and sleep over with her. Yes, this is another one of those like dumb teenage decisions where it's like, oh, well, I'm already in trouble for drinking. I might as well have my boyfriend come over and we'll have sex in this tent. <laughs> um, because like, where else are we going to have sex at this point, you know? Um, and I love that Sterling is still clinging to this idea that it's like, this is our marital bed. Like we're doing, you know, like we're just simply practicing for the assignment that will be our marriage. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like that. And I'll have I'll have some stuff to say about the way that people are judging Sterling and, and why as we move further into this episode. Um, but I also just want to say like something uh, about Luke being in the tent. We're going to learn this episode is one of the first um, the first windows that we get into Luke's home life. We're going to meet his mom at book club. Yeah. And as the season goes on, we learn that like Luke's home life is not great. So once you have that piece of information, going back and watching these episodes where he's like hanging out in the empty auditorium for hours with Sterling uh, and then staying there even after Sterling leaves 
uh, and then like is later sleeping in this tent with her. Like it's interesting to look at that and see it as like Luke's home life actually being so uncomfortable uh, that he is trying to spend every moment that he can out of that house. That's a really good point and makes me feel even more sad for Luke. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the sequence of Blair helping Sterling prep for school. Um, they're just such good sisters. And the dynamic in the house is really interesting because uh, Sterling is just being treated as this pariah in the house. I feel like even with that, there's a, there's a, there's an undercurrent of like Debbie is very upset with Sterling, but there's an undercurrent that she's not like Sterling knows that she will eventually be forgiven. You know, like there's an undercurrent way underneath of like a little bit of humor or a little bit of like Debbie kind of knows she's going overboard in that. Um, Blair is kind of hilariously caught in the middle and uh, trying to. It's funny that Blair is sort of the one who's like almost being treated as like the good kid, quote unquote, in this in this scenario. Yes, agreed. And you definitely get the you get the feeling that that is very unusual, that normally Sterling is the one who is in their mother's good graces and Blair is the one who's like kind of being a bit rebellious. Yeah. And I felt like this was ver very Veronica Hastings, the way that Debbie was talking about like her book club and like what people will think. And, yeah. you know, everybody, everybody knows about Sterling's drinking and um, Debbie is, is, is quite concerned about how that reflects on, on the family name. Oh, yeah. Well, and so new characters, all of the book club members, we get a wider view yes. of Debbie's social circle and how, like, it's not just her worrying about that. There are ramifications of Sterling's drunken insta uh, that impact her standing with her somewhat transactional friend group. Yeah, and I like how even uh, within that friend group, we kind of get the sense, like, there's a, there's a sense that um, Luke's mom who I believe her name is Lynn is a little bit closer with Debbie than maybe some of the other moms that Debbie doesn't seem to really like as much. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because Debbie and Lynn bond over having not read the book. So it's like, yes. they're kind of bonding over this, uh, the sense that like when they're together, they're allowed to be imperfect. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really great point. Um, one of the other things that's going on in this episode is that Blair and Miles are very into each other. They are really all in on this relationship. Uh, but Blair seems very invested in her idea of like what Miles's life is and this idea that he sort of has this hard existence that is very interesting and kind of alluring to her. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yes, Which is yes. pretty much completely, you know, I mean, I mean, it's it's largely a fabrication on her part because she actually doesn't really know anything about his whole life at this point. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we have the skip who is a woman who's been running various scams. She's currently uh, selling fake jewelry to rich Christians. And the main action revolves around the girls using Debbie's book club to lure the skip, uh, but then being surprised when a man named I think it's like John Slack is his name rather than the female mastermind shows up. Yes. Yes. And I love this. I mean, it's such a, it's such a comedy of errors, but I think it's really fun the way that it all comes together where it's like 
the skip has to be invited to the party because of this jewelry scam. You know, they need a they need a, a, a really nice house in a really nice neighborhood as sort of a lure. Then Miles uh, wants to spend more time with Blair, so he volunteers to be a valet at this party. And so it's like suddenly we have everybody is sort of converging on uh, this party that was supposed to be, you know, Debbie kind of like smoothing things over socially after the big fallout with Sterling. So it's 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 really fun. I mean, it's such a it's such a like a kind of classic tropey uh, storyline, but I think it works really, really well. Um, I love you know Blair like Blair's freak out when Miles arrives to be the valet one of my favorite lines is like she's she's like frantic about the fact that her room her room reflects the fact that she has been 12 within the last <laughs> like four years or something she said <laughs> and she's talking about her her BTS poster and she's like I will burn it but I am furious about this and just <laughs> Her delivery on that line is really, really funny. Um, as is the way that Sterling and Blair are constantly maneuvering this um, this guy who's not the real Skip, but the this John Slack character. Like he's, they're like maneuvering him around this party, like he's like a, you know, like a like an ugly potted plant or something. And they're just like <laughs> trying to figure out like the best angle where they can both get information out of him uh, and also like not have him kind of totally blow up blow you know up what's going on in front of their mom um and i also love that blair is kind of a terrible interrogator like she's <laughs> too eager she wants it too much oh, she's the spencer interrogator she's like so the dog spencer. with the bone interrogator like you know there's no subtlety she is just dropping the whole anvil on their heads all at once Blair feels especially Spencery to me in this episode. Like she is just like dancing as fast as she can, trying to do <laughs> ten million things at once. I think she has Spencer and Aria energy. Like she has a lot of she has a lot of Aria at Jenna's hat party energy, where she's just like running around. She's like out of breath a lot of the time because she's like she's like passing canapes, but also like just chased a skip up the hill. She is like gonna pour a lemonade on Laurel Tuckman's camera at at any moment. Like she and, has that wild, she has that wild energy about her in this episode <laughs> of like anything can happen. She is not being constrained by like the bounds of polite society right now. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely, um, there's definitely a Asparia, Asparia vibe to her in this episode for sure. Uh, but also, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna also note something on the is Blair queer watch mm, alert, okay? Uh, which is the I believe this is the episode, or or it might have been the previous one, where she mentions listening to old Tori Amos songs. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> I remember which episode that was in. But, yeah, it was uh, it was one of these two. I don't. It might have been when she was talking about like how she was gonna like ready to for a new relationship or something. But yeah, Blair listens to Tori Amos. <laughs> check uh, yeah yeah there's there's also this interesting storyline with Bowser where um, he establishes early in the episode that he has a no cops policy they don't work with cops um, and he ends up sort of on this stakeout and is approached by like the you know security guard of this community you know and uh, who was immediately suspicious of him then when Bowser identifies himself as, or when this man interprets that Bowser is a cop, uh, immediately his tone changes and then the real police show up. And so it's like there's this, this kind of interesting um, 
situation of like the 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 hierarchy of of both race and being a police officer. Yeah, I think that this like watching this with the previous episode where we talked about like I felt like some of the handling of things was a bit clunky. This felt like another moment where this is all sort of played as a comedic reveal, I guess, because yeah. um, what what this is going to lead to is that um, like where we're going to learn that Bowser himself used to be a cop, but he accidentally discharged his weapon and shot a police horse in the face, um, which is kind of like, this is like a little bit of a double hit of problematic because for one thing, like Bowser being seen as a black man parked in this wealthy community where someone has called the authorities because he was sitting in his car for too long. Like right. that could be a life and death situation in the totally. world that we live in, especially when additional police are responding to the scene uh, and think that he maybe opposed as a cop, like, this is a problem. And also the, like, somewhat, like, ha, 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 he was a cop, but then he discharged his weapon accidentally at a pride parade and he shot his police force. Like, accidentally discharging your weapon when you're a cop is also something that's a life and death situation for lots of people. So mm -hmm. this is, like, again, it's, like, it's set up to be funny, but, like, in the world that we currently live in, and even in the world we were living in at this time, that's not like I, I don't feel it really hits as a as a truly amusing element, in my opinion. Yeah, I I agree. I think that um, there are elements of that plot line that are feel like they're not necessarily trying for the comedic beat. Like they feel like they are trying for something a little bit a little bit deeper and more meaningful. But I feel like it ultimately like ends on a really comedic beat, the whole storyline. And so it sort of undercuts whatever um, whatever like pathos they might have been aiming for earlier in the episode in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine. Like, it's fine to have this is a thing that happened to Bowser that like caused his life to start unraveling. Like, sure. I, I like that part of there being a backstory for him. Like things were like that there's a version of Bowser that existed and that might've continued to exist if things were going well, uh, but then things went badly and this is where he's wound up. Like this is the timeline that we're in for him now. Um, so I like that, but I, I don't, I, I think the way that they do this uh, with the police uh, having him here and then putting him in jail, like that, that part I feel like had some room for improvement. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I wonder, do you think it would have, do you think there's a way in which it could have been more successful if the um, if the way that he had left like left the force was not sort of played for a laugh? Yeah, I yeah, do. yeah. I think so too. I think so well, too. like for example, what if he had been what if he had been the mythical good cop? What if he was a good cop who like blew the whistle on some bad cops, but then was sure. forced to quit? Like I feel like that could be an interesting story as well. So he did the right thing. And like that could have kind of explained why he doesn't really believe in the right thing anymore. And why he doesn't trust cops. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think that would have been, I, I, I think that would have been a much more interesting um, story, but they, they wanted to go for the, for the joke, the, you know, they had, they had that uh, a horse is a horse, of course, of course, joke. And they mm -hmm. really wanted to do it there at the end of the episode. They did. They did. And they, 
and they show that picture of him like grinning and looking trim uh, with the horse, like which I feel like is also kind of a a ha ha type of moment. Sure. Well, and then it's like it's like it was you know it's like he's talking about the drag queen and the death drops, and it's like mm-hmm. oh like ha ha like what a you know Bowser being so sort of literate in this world, and then yeah, and then the reveal about the horse, like it's yeah, it's definitely played as a comedic beat. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And my gosh, even um, even in the world that we're living in now, like it's a huge in, in Columbus, uh, where I live, it's like a, a huge issue of should we even have cops at Pride? Because sure. cops arrested like there was there was a whole thing here where cops uh, arrested some uh, some black queer protesters uh, who had been protesting like the corporate nature of Pride a few years ago and they were being charged. And it was this whole thing. So. Yeah, it's it's a question of whether cops should even be at Pride, and here we have it as like part of the funny backstory. Right, right. One element that I do like of that of Bowser's storyline in this episode is that I feel like it deepens his history and connection with Yolanda in a really sort of subtle way that I think is really effective. Like, there's a real sense of their shared history together. Agreed, agreed. I do like that part. Yeah. Um, so one of the busybody moms uh, drunkenly spills the beans that Sterling, bum bum bum, has been having sex with Luke. Um, Sterling or uh, Luke's mom, Lynn, immediately sort of sees this as something Sterling did to her precious Luke. Debbie um, covers for and kind of lightly defends her daughter in front of her friends, uh, but then quickly needs some time alone to uh to process this news well and there's a lot going on here like throughout like the the book club goes on for a long time like the guys like selling jewelry to them like like you said uh sterling and blair are like moving him around like a potted plant blair is like running down to talk to miles and try to make him eat a sandwich and like then you know kidnaps the the guy in her you know at a car like there's a lot happening uh within the book club we learn um, that Lynn hates her husband, Vernon, yes. uh, when when she's talking like she she basically like in her first scene with Debbie, she makes a joke about how Vernon is out hunting and Anderson is out hunting. And, you know, why do they spend so much time out hunting? And, and like <laughs> and Lynn's kind of says like, oh, yeah, they're out there so much, maybe sometime they'll just shoot one another. Like, she's, she's like, and it's like, it's like a joke, but it's not a joke. She's really maybe hoping that her husband would die. Um, so, yeah, basically, they're my parents, except Rich. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely, we get a lot of, like, what that relationship is in, in not very much. Uh, not very much dialogue or screen time, uh, but it it yeah it all kind of sets up this yeah this really heartbreaking moment where Sterling is outed. Well, yeah, and and also like they've been like it has been a constant topic of conversation in the book club uh, about Sterling's drunken insta. Like there's a woman who I I think she might be Hannah B's mom. I, I think is is the other. Woman, if she's not Hannah B's mom, she's the mom of like some other kid who goes to their school because she's the one that like has the info about um, about Sterling and Luke. Do do you think she's Hannah B's mom? Do we know whose oh, mom she is? I 
I wasn't getting that she was Hannah B's mom. Maybe there was a line that I missed. Yeah, I did not know whose mom she is. She is she is definitely the the most drunk at this party. Yeah, and so like here here's what's going on at this party. Like the woman who she's a mom at the school. Uh, at one point, while talking about the drunk Insta that Sterling had, says to Deb, when you let one sin in, it opens the door for others. And right. Deb says, not here. We have ADT. And I think that this is such, I, I love that there's this moment of them saying, like, you let one sin in and it opens the door for others. Because this is, like, what you let in. Like, they let a scammer into their party who's, like, sure. you know, selling them all of this bad jewelry. Um, and also like, it wasn't having sex. Like we know that Sterling and Luke have been having sex, but it wasn't them having sex that led Sterling to be drunk at this party. It was the response for her doing that. It was the shunning, uh, that everyone put her through. So I just think that's a really interesting, like, that's a really interesting thing to look at. And also the flutter of concern over Sterling's gasp, drunken party antics is happening as all of these women drink from the most enormous glasses of wine you have ever seen. Like, they are so big. They're, like, bigger than the bowl of soup that racist Big Daddy carried out onto the patio. Like, they are so big. They're, like, the the range of the Amy Schumer joke wine glass. Like, (laughs) so it's clear that Sterling's real sin isn't drinking. And Sterling's right. real sin isn't having sex. Sterling's real sin is doing these things when she's young. Right. And doing them in a way that is perceived to like bring shame, like, you know, doing them publicly, like being public in the way that she is doing these things. It's also the middle of the afternoon. Like, I feel like <laughs> I feel like this episode does a really good job of kind of um, showing this sort of like the bleary the bleary like mid Sunday afternoon, like just like you can, you can almost like feel the hangovers that all of these ladies are going to have come Monday morning. Yeah. 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 Um, And, and that the lives that they lead, like none of them have anything so important on Monday morning that they can't get knockered out of their gourds on Sunday afternoon. Exactly. Well, and and the idea that like, you know, they all have they have this valet and they've all driven here. And as as Debbie says, like, you're going to need to take an Uber home, you know, (laughs) like, and, 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 you know, you can just imagine like somebody else will deal with like getting their cars back to them. Oh, oh, yes, yes. That's probably included in the valet service that the valet will like drive it home behind your Uber and then take the Uber back to the party and do that for the next person's car. Exactly, exactly. Um, meanwhile, Blair like wildly intercepts the skip in this whole like it's like a it's like a car chase that turns into a foot chase that turns into like a tackle. Um, and she learns that this guy is um, has basically taken on the Kendra St. John identity. Um, and I do like that Blair like asks if that's how he identifies when he says that he's Kendra St. John. Um, and uh and for a second, I was like, oh, man, are we going with, like, a Veronica Mars um, thing here? Like, that early episode of Veronica Mars with, I think it's Melissa Leo in it. Um, but, uh, no, it, it does not go there. Kendra St. John is in the wind. And this guy has taken on her her persona to sell some jewelry. Um, and 
Yeah. And then Blair, like, very quickly ends up just babbling a mile a minute, very Aria, lying to Miles about everything that she's been up to. I think it eventually involves a dog that eats its own vomit and, like, why <laughs> she disappeared so suddenly. Um, and and also, another bit of foreshadowing, he hasn't been straightforward about his family because she drives him home and he lives in a gigantic mansion um, because his mother is a state senator. As well as a lawyer? Is a lawyer, I think. Job? And her dad, his dad, I think, owns a bank. Yes. <laughs> so his family is extremely wealthy. Yes, yes. Um, and so, like... So that's all happening. The bomb has been dropped back at the book club about Sterling having sex. And like, it's so, it's so great because we've seen the tough love uh, that Deb was like putting on about the drinking. And now that it's like, now that it's Sterling having sex with Luke, like you don't get the tough love. We're going to keep you outside. Like Deb, Deb like does her very best to like be compassionate and like understanding and have a real dialogue with her daughter about this. And it's, it's, I feel like, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot to say about it too, but this is one of the best parent child scenes uh, about like one of the, one of the characters having sex that I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, contrast this even with, I mean, to bring up Friday Night Lights again, like um, the scene with Tammy Taylor and Julie which is a, a great scene in some ways, but is is so rooted in Tammy's disappointment that Julie didn't wait. And this scene, what I love, I just love this conversation between Debbie and Sterling. And I love that Debbie does not have the answers. You know, she she doesn't know if she's, she can't really answer if she's disappointed. She can't really condemn Sterling for things that she herself has done. She can't really... Um, comfort Sterling's confusion about the Bible because the Bible is very contradictory and um, Debbie doesn't doesn't really have like a, a roadmap for this um, and and I really love too that Sterling you know Sterling discloses that she wasn't actually planning on telling Debbie that she probably wouldn't have told Debbie if it hadn't come out like this and like that's the piece that breaks Debbie's heart not the fact that Sterling had sex in the first place um, I just think that's beautiful, and I, I hope that it is foreshadowing of when Sterling eventually comes out, uh, Debbie Debbie having a, a similar response. I love, when you were talking about, um, like, the centering of parental disappointment, this scene opens when Sterling is, like, on her bed uh, being, like, upset, and, and her mom comes in, and one of the first things that Sterling says is, like, are you disappointed in me? Yeah. And I love that Debbie's response is, I don't know what to feel. Uh, yeah. Because we've talked before about how, like, for example, on, you know, our regular podcast is a Pretty Little Liars-centric uh, podcast where we're, like, recapping it episode by episode. Um, and on that show, it's like people are always one thing or another. They're always motiva- motivated by this one primary objective and like there's no shading nothing else ever enters in like I just love that they allow Deb like an uncertainty here not not even just about like what the bible says but like just like I'm not sure what I feel like she's probably feeling pretty overwhelmed by like all of this 
you know, it's it's really obvious that Sterling is going through something. Uh, and, and and like Deb is interested in providing her with like guidance and kindness. Yeah. And I just it's so great. Well, I also love that, you know, I feel like we're so used to that narrative thing of like a character hears some surprising news. They say, like, give me a minute. You know, I need to process this. And then later they have the conversation and they have all the right words. You know, they know know exactly what to say. They've ruminated on it. They've prayed on it. They've like they've got their, you know, their speech that's going to like the monologue that's going to save the day. And I love that you can kind of um, extrapolate that Debbie has been like probably thinking about this all day and she still doesn't know what to say. And that's so human, you know, that's so that's so real um and there are there are some lines in this scene that i just really love like i love when when debbie says god still loves me and he forgives me for all of my many mistakes just like i know he forgives you i love that sterling says is it okay that i don't regret it and that debbie doesn't really know the answer i love that debbie checks in if they've been safe and when sterling says that she's been using condoms they've been using condoms Debbie's like, that's good or bad. I don't know. Like, and she kind of laughs to herself because it's like, oh man, this whole thing has gotten so complicated. It makes it so clear that like it, it, real life is not this binary system, you know, that, that that real life is, there are like shades of, of gray here and that um, Debbie and Sterling are both kind of grappling with the fact that Sterling has been raised in this household with with very binary attitudes about things. And that's just, she's reached a point now where that's just not a realistic outlook on life. Well, uh, I, we've talked about this on on the Pretty Little Liars podcast, but I talk about Lindsay King Miller's essay about, um, like, it's about Prezra and his relationship with Aria and the way that the show romanticizes that. And the idea that you have to teach teenage girls something more than to just say no because not everyone is going to say no every time. And if all you're saying is say no, that leaves people completely unprepared for like the myriad possibilities of like relationships and miscommunication and like bad situations you might get into, good situations you might get into. Like it, it closes down any discussion of those things because the only messaging you get is just don't do this. Um, and it, like when it came to Sterling's drinking, that was kind of the message. Just don't do it. Like do it and yeah. you're out in a tent in the backyard. But when it comes to this, like when it comes to Sterling having sex with Luke, like Debbie is willing to like give that all of the nuance that it deserves. Like yeah. she's she's not going to just like shame her daughter. In fact, she doesn't shame her at all. Like she just, she just like, she just looks at where they are and like tries to navigate it as best they can together. And I just feel like that's such a unique approach for a television parent. Yeah, I agree. And I love that, that she's talking like that. She's saying to Sterling, you know, I, I did this exact same thing that you did. And Sterling is like shocked, you know, she cannot fathom that her mother would have sinned, you know, in this same way. Um, but she is like in doing that, like it deepens the intimacy between the two of them. They get to know each other better. And there's a real sense that they've never had a conversation like this before. Mm-hmm. You know, they've mm-hmm. never been this real with one another. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this wonderful scene 
Uh, and of course it ends like, so she's, you know, she's like really, she's really been there for her daughter. They're really talking through it. They're really connecting, but the scene ends with her still like kind of putting the hammer down and saying that she and Lynn have talked about it and Luke and Sterling are going to have to press pause on their relationship. Yes. Yes. And she sort of drops that on the way out the door. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, uh, you guys can't see each other anymore for a little while. Like you need to, you need to slow down a little bit. Um, and I like that pretty immediately, I feel like we get the sense that Sterling might know that she and Luke will break up if they can't be around each other all the time. That like what has kept them together has been sort of momentum and the fact that they're in each other's orbit so often and the fact that it's just so easy and safe to be together. Um, and here it's even they have this this FaceTime call where they're both, you know, voicing sadness about not seeing each other. I feel like there's a sense that Sterling is already kind of mourning this relationship a little bit. Well, you know, when she and Blair are talking about it, there's the line of like, well, they, you know, it's not going to stop you loving each other or it's not going to stop us loving each other. And it's like, well, no, but it's it's going to force you to have this space uh, that's going to that's going to bring a lot of this other stuff to the surface here. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, man, the scene between Sterling and Blair where they're in bed snuggling and they're talking about all the sad, like top five saddest things. And they settle on people who don't have sisters. Oh, oh what a God, perfect moment. That. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so just, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking and perfect. And it's like, I, I love that. Um, there's something very real to me about this. Like, it's been a really hard day for Sterling. It's been like a kind of hard day for Blair, but like not like a devastating day for Blair. And yet they're both like, they're so sort of overwhelmed and connected and also worried about Bowser and all of this, that like, they're both just crying and sad. And that just feels very real to me of like that depth of emotional intimacy with another person, you know? Well, yeah. And like, there's a there's a moment I think in in the first episode of these two in, in so episode three of the series where um, Sterling is worried about going to school and Blair says something like your breath is my life like she yes. and she says it like it's not like a joke like she's saying like that's what their feelings even if Blair had had a great day she would never be able to feel happy when Sterling was this sad yes exactly exactly and they are also they're like the degree to which they care about Bowser is increasing as well. And so I think that their concern about Bowser, particularly Blair's feelings towards Bowser are increasing as well here. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, Oh, this is like an important thing to note. They don't get the skip. They don't catch St. John in this episode. So this is like how law and order always has like a few cases where somebody gets away with it. Like where, where the jury comes back and says they're, not guilty um you know so it's interesting that like this is an episode where maybe maybe every character doesn't have to get what they want every time maybe everything doesn't have to be wrapped up in a neat bow maybe you know maybe there is room for the world to have a lot of imperfections in it and that's just how it is and maybe you reach a point where it's time to let go 
because like just yes. as Sterling and Debbie were talking about, like, I love, love, love that, that part in their conversation where they're talking about when it's time to move on. And Debbie's like, it's not anybody's fault. It's just sometimes you have a dress and it, you love the way it looks on you. And then you put it on one day and it's just not right anymore. And, and, you know, Sterling's immediately like, well, that, that's not the case with me and Luke. Like me and Luke are totally <laughs> fine, you know? Um, but I just, I think that that's great. Like there's, there's this real sense of like kind of growing up in this episode. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just think that that's, um, that that's really beautiful. I love it. Oh, I, I completely agree. And that we have this wonderful scene uh, with Sterling and her mom. And then uh, we see Sterling and Blair both really worried about Bowser. And then we get this final scene of them with their like surrogate parents, uh, Yolanda and Bowser, uh, where they go yeah. and they eat in a diner. And you get the feeling. So what's happened to Bowser is that he was he was in jail for 47 minutes uh, after his interaction with the cops. Uh, and, and now uh, he and Yolanda are at this diner. Yolanda has called in the twins. And I love that you kind of get the feeling like the twins definitely don't need to be here. But calling them in means two things. It means that Yolanda and Bowser get to sit on the same side of the booth. And it also means uh, that Yolanda has called them in maybe just to make Bowser feel better. Maybe just when he's feeling really down to show him that there are people who care about him in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And this episode kind of ends on this note of Blair and Sterling deciding that their job, that they like their mission basically is to fix Bowser. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. to to improve his life, which I mean, what's kind of sweet about that is like just them being in his life has made his life better. Yeah, and, you know. Yeah, and this is also they they're interpreting this as God. God may have called them to do this. This is this is what they're assuming is the hand of God yes. moment. Um, and I think like it's it's so interesting. Like when you think about the arcs of this season. And, and the way that, like, these characters believe that God interacts in their lives in the, like, his eye is on the sparrow kind of way. Um, and I think that when you when you look back and you see that, like, uh, Sterling's purse spilled, April picked up that condom wrapper, and in her attempts to use it to blackmail Sterling... It is eventually going to be the thing that grants one of April's dearest unspoken wishes and that it launches this sequence of events that is going to end with Luke and Sterling breaking up. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like this. It's like a it's like a, a Rube Goldberg machine of <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Know? That's exactly what happens. Like, it, you know, it, it kicked a ball out of a basket that went and like had a, you know, a back scratcher that went up and yeah, it's, it's all of these things and it's eventually going to result in the breakup of this relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really, really interesting. It's really interesting. Um, do we have more to say about this episode? Oh man, this was, I mean, this was, this was a great one. Um, yeah. it, it didn't have a ton of, it didn't have a ton of queer content because it was an April free episode, uh, mm-hmm. but it was, was this one the one that was, was it written or was it directed? Um, it was by... directed by Lauren Morelli. Lauren Morelli. Yes. 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 Um, yeah. And this, this is also, I think that this is, um, 
I think this is the first episode of the series that was uh, directed by a woman and the, the primary writing credit, I think, might mm-hmm. also be a woman. Okay. Yeah. I, so but, that's exciting. Like, I yeah. mean, it's really cool that there are so many, like, um, it, it seems like there are so many women who are as part of the production team here. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And um, yeah, this is this is a really this is a really good one. I think that that Debbie Sterling conversation sh- it will go will go down and like it's like a Hall of Fame kind of moment there, I think. Um, the next two episodes, there's a lot going on. We've got Death is Bad and Master Debater. Oh, we have so much. Oh, my God. There's so much good stuff coming up. You know, I, I think I do have one more thing to say about these two episodes. Okay. In the way that in the way that the grandparents came in in the first episode and in the way that we see the social circle that Deb moves in here. I think it's interesting to think about the way that like it seems like the duty of these parents in this world is to raise people who are gonna be just like them. Is to like raise yeah. these kids who are going to live the same life. Like because Luke has a line where he's talking about how his his grandfather was the captain of the golf team and his dad was the captain of the golf team and his brother was the captain of the golf team and sure. he's supposed to do what they did and go and golf at UGA go dogs um like they they have this whole thing and i think it's really interesting that uh deb is she's clearly trying to do that like when she and the girls are going to meet their terrible grandmother and she has like she tells them like shoulders back smile and they're like right. you know walking out like they're in a pageant so like everybody's job in this world is kind of to do that to raise their kids to grow up and be just like them and i like the way that it's working in a subtly different way in that like debbie is raising these kids uh, to be like independent thinkers and yeah. to follow their own conscience and to believe in a God who loves them. Like, which is like, it, it's like, it's teaching them to be like she is, but not like she is in the way that's going to make them just like everybody else in this town. Well, I completely agree. And I think what's also really interesting about that is that so much of of Debbie is Debbie trying to escape her own past Mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, she is, many of these characters are trying to emulate their parents. Debbie has run as far away as she can from her family of origin, you know, and, and has worked very hard to build this new persona and this sort of new life for herself. Um, and that, I think that's a very interesting place to position that character. Yeah. And that like part of, part of the situation is they can't ever really know who their mother is as long as she's keeping this secret. And that also means that they can't ever really know who they are because that's right. part of her secret. And so like every time they get a little bit closer, like it, it breaks Debbie's heart. You see that it breaks her heart when she's talking to Sterling and Sterling says she probably wouldn't have told her, like not being able to know each other completely is heartbreaking, but it's the deal that Debbie has made at this point. So it's really like, it's fascinating to watch those threads um, play out as the season moves on and to like see them coming into play in these two episodes, I think. Right. And that, you know, you see how Debbie, like Debbie is cracking a little piece of herself open in this scene with Sterling 
And like the whole rest of the season is going to be Debbie sort of cracking more pieces open and showing more pieces of herself to her daughters. And yet she has kept those pieces from them in the name of protection. You know, like it's not, it's not, it's a very real threat that she is like trying to keep away from them. Um, So it's, it's, yeah, I, I love that it gets to be so complex. Yes, and we have two great, great episodes coming up next week that I am so psyched to talk about as well. Oh, man, me too, me too. If you have thoughts on this episode, please feel free, or these episodes, please feel free to send us an email at everybodyapodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our Instagram at everybodyapodcast. You can also send in a rating and review on iTunes. We would appreciate it. Um, This is such such a fun thing that we are doing. I'm so happy to be uh, talking Teenage Bounty Hunters with you every week. <laughs> yes, the- me me too. It is a highlight. Agreed. All right. Well, until next time. Take care.